Thanks, Becky. Morning, friends. <laughs> uh, my name's Nick Carney. Uh, if we haven't met before, I'm sometime elder musician and general attendee here at Church of the City. We started unpacking the book of Ephesians almost exactly four months ago. I think uh, tomorrow we'll mark that date. Um, and this morning is our second last session in the book. If you were looking in your Bible, you probably clocked that there's only a few verses left here. Um, the byline for this entire series has been our unsearchable riches. And we've been trying to zero in on the wild, mysterious, and I think if we really give it like it's full due, like the mind-blowing blessings that God has given us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and through the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. Following that theme, the past two weeks have been, uh, how do we describe it? Uh, they've been particularly focused on God's radical new vision for human relationships in society. So we've talked about husband, husbands and wives, parents and kids, um, masters and workers and servants. Um, yeah, I would just, I want to say at the front end, that's been the focus. And while every message since February has been really, really good, if you missed either of those last two messages, I would encourage you to go back to them, to make time to listen to them. There are really deep questions and challenges contained in both of those passages and in the way that Spencer unpacked them for us. And they're worth our careful consideration, uh, whether we've been a Christian for a long time or are brand new. This morning, though, uh, our passage is one that if you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, you might be super familiar with it. Uh, we've just had it read. Um, and the stakes are high with familiar passages because it's really, really easy to skirt over them and be like, I understand sort of what we're, what we're talking about here. And uh, if you grew up in a certain sort of cadre of uh, Christianity when you were young, uh, images of gray plastic armor probably came to your mind. Uh, I grew up in a family where we had the full armor of God in sort of an ambiguous medieval time period set of armor and we could wear that and that was the symbolism for it. And so there's familiarity here, but I think there's also some really great potential for new learnings as we enter into new seasons. So we're talking about the armor of God, which to clarify, not the, that's how grammar works, not the armor that God wears, but the metaphorical armor that God gives us through the spirit and that he expects us to intentionally put on if we are serious about following Jesus. And we're going to frame sort of the conversation this morning. I've got sort of three questions that we're going to answer as we walk through this. The first is, who are we fighting? Which is a crucial question to ask when we're talking about armaments. What is our equipment? which maybe is the, the, the more natural answer that sits at the center of the passage. And then the last one is, how do we put it on? And so, as with those three questions in mind, let's just pause at the front end, as we always do, pray, think and feel out where you are this morning, where we all are, and to be honest with ourselves. And then, in as much as we're able, bring that honest assessment of ourselves before God. Let's just pause for a second.
Lord. We're thankful for roofs on rainy days in spite of the humidity. We're thankful for your word and for the truths that it contains as wild and complicated as they can be. I pray this morning that as we talk about armor, as we talk about protection, as we talk about the fight that we are called into as believers, that in as much as we take the call very seriously, and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would, you would work in our hearts, that you would stir us up to feel it in its full significance and weight, that also it wouldn't just become another North American burden that we carry as individuals, and it's just another box to check every morning. And I confess I don't know exactly how well I'll be able to do that. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in all of our hearts to not make your armor and the blessings that you give us our unsearchable riches not a burden, but rather a crucial part of how you bless and interact with us in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So three questions. The first one is, who are we fighting? I'm going to give us some background, remind us of what the last two, two weeks have been a little bit to give us some context. So, Paul spends a chapter or more laying out God's new paradigm for human relationships. It's complicated, there's mystery in it that he acknowledges, um, and readers, both ancient and modern, can be forgiven for feeling some doubt even to its feasibility. There's some idealism, maybe. Paul lays out this vision. It's bold and it's optimistic. Also, if we look closely, we might also notice that the only obstacle in these passages to the new life is us, is people. If husbands and wives submit in love, if children honor and parents don't provoke, if servants are sincere and bosses keep their authority in perspective, if we all just do that, then maybe this vision can happen. But then in verse 10, Paul zooms out. He drastically shifts his perspective from this ground level of merely human society to a cosmic view that should remind us what the true stakes are when we talk about following Jesus. So we come to the end. If you've been here for the two weeks, we've got this. He's been talking. He's laying out this beautiful, brand new vision for how everything should work, and it seems like it'll be great, and humans just have to get it together, and we'll be fine. And then Paul comes in at the beginning of verse 10, and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. And we respond, why? And he says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he hasn't talked about the devil in a bit. And we say, ah, oh, care to elaborate? Paul? He says, no problem. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we don't, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If we've been following from an applicational perspective, we should feel literal whip, not literal, we should feel metaphorical whiplash as we transition from these two points. Because it's wild. 
Paul lays out this plan for human society. He instills dignity and worth into demographics that are often denied it, past and present. Then he puts a strong weight of expectation and responsibility on demographics that often get to sidestep it, past and present. The temptation is to hear it and fall to the idea that the primary obstacle to God's new world are just people that don't follow the rules. And then Paul kicks the wall down and says, but that's not the real fight at all. The choices people make matter. Sin is real. God has righteous expectations for his people. But Paul lays the hammer down and says, but humans aren't the enemy of the church. Who are we actually fighting? (laughs) Big gulp. Demonic spiritual powers. And I got to tell you, I had a really hard time writing this part of the sermon. Because while I have deep and familiar, pretty deep and familiar patterns of thought around God as a spiritual being and his impact on my life, I have a really hard time actively living in the knowledge of negative spiritual forces. So I can read this passage and sort of cognitively assent But if you ask me, how does the existence of demons impact your daily Christian walk? I would have a hard time. It would probably feel no different than if you said, how do you deal with temptation? But that doesn't really seem equivalent. I'm trying to, I tried to find a way to explain it, and this is the best attempt I had, and I hope that you can follow with me. So, germ theory. The idea that the main reason people get sick is because of microscopic organisms only showed up between 1850 and 1920. So it's pretty new. Before that, there were a lot of ideas. A lot of them involved just bleeding people out to deal with sickness or just shunting them away. And so there's a lot of confusion, especially if you weren't a medical professional. And my guess is that during that time, if you were trying to avoid sickness, you just avoid sick people. But then, 1850, there's a lot of other people involved with this, but for example, Louis Pasteur shows up and is like, actually, it's not the people that are the problem, it's tiny, tiny creatures that you can't see. They're the problem, and that, understandably, took a fair bit of time to catch on. Because it's way easier to believe that there are sick people and they make me sick than to trust a French guy who says there's ghosts in your blood, basically, making you sick, right? That's how I feel, even knowing it at a cognitive level, about Paul telling me after laying out this comparatively rational outline for social order that while that's important, the real concern are demons. I find it tough. And I know that in a room this big, even of Baptists, there will be folks here that have a very active understanding of the spiritual realm. And I've... I've been in churches in the past. I haven't always been a Baptist, sorry. Um, And so I I have seen and witnessed and experienced powerful movements in that sphere, but it's not deep in my head. But some of you aren't there. So I want to confess that that's where I sit with it. And if you find yourself similarly aligned, sort of at the outset to some extent, even though this is a third of the sermon, there's two main things that I've been trying to say to myself as I prep this sermon. And if you feel similarly... Hopefully, it speaks to you to some extent. So number one, the Western world has been anti-spiritual for a long time. 
There are pockets of New Age spirituality, and there's certainly been moments of religious experience, but by and large, our cultural gravity is towards a materialistic view of things. It's not to say there's not exceptions to that, but that's the pull. It doesn't change what's true, but it does provide some context as to why it can feel very difficult to engage with this part of Christian belief. It's an old quote, older than the usual suspects, but that's old too, uh, that says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was in convincing the world he didn't exist. There's a lot of truth in that sentence, especially here in North America, so we can bear that in mind. B, and the other half of the coin though, is that it's crucial that we do actually reckon with passages like this. It's pretty easy to be like, yeah, for sure, there's temptation. Like, I didn't say there was temptation, I said there was demons. And if we don't reckon with this, there's two primary alternatives. The first is to skip the demon, which opens us up to demonizing people really, really easily. Because if it's not something else, it's probably them or us. And then the other alternative is that we just hibernate. We just pretend there's not a problem at all. There's no battle going on. And we can't read Paul and be content with either of those approaches. So, this is not a rousing speech, but while it's hard, we have to pay attention and we have to grapple it as best as we can. So that's the first. Who we're fighting? Demons. Number two, what's our equipment? Verses 14 to 17. We're a third of the way through the sermon. We haven't talked about the armor yet, which might be a fun surprise. It's crucial, though, that Paul clarifies who the fight is against first, though, because otherwise, and this is, I think, Spencer gave a spoiler on this last week, which is fun, because otherwise, if he doesn't clarify what, who we're fighting against, then Paul is prescribing the worst armor in the world. Quick reminder of everything we're prescribed. You put on a belt, except it's an ideological belt, it's truth. Put on a breastplate, it's symbolic, it's righteousness. Shoes are not real shoes, they're the readiness for the gospel of peace. Shield is of faith, helmet is of salvation, sword is of the spirit. This is written to people in first century Turkey. The Roman Empire is in full swing, everybody knows what armor actually is. Physical conflict is a very regular part of a lot of people's lives. Christians, in particular, are being beaten and put in jail. Paul knows this very, very well. He's got a great passage where he describes all the ways in which he's been beaten and encountered physical issues. But especially if we're familiar with, so especially if we're familiar with this passage, you can just skip over this, like, here's the armor of God, and it's all spiritual, and be like, yeah, that makes sense. It's always been like that. But we got to just reflect on how bonkers it is that Paul, from jail and having been flogged like eight times, writes a letter to a group of people for whom physical danger is very real and present and says, okay, so what you really need is ideological protection. Because that doesn't align. That's not the protection people are looking for, generally speaking. It's one of the most subversive things about our faith. We know from Jesus' healing ministry and the whole of Scripture and lots beyond that that God's not indifferent to our physical existence, but it's a fundamental aspect of following Jesus that the only armor God calls us to put on does not protect us from physical harm or even physical death because 
When we hear what Jesus really taught, both verbally and through his actions, we can't get away from the fact that mere physical preservation isn't the goal and physical death isn't the primary concern. I don't know if you've ever thought about how weird it must have been for people who knew Jesus that he had this tendency of when he encountered dead people, he would say they were only sleeping. Again, first century Palestine, people know what death looks like. They're very familiar. It's a regular part of life, way more than it is here in Canada. And then Jesus shows up. We've got Matthew 9, 24, sees people grieving, hears people wailing, and says, the girl's not dead, but sleeping. Friends, the girl was dead, and Jesus knew she was, but he said she was sleeping. But physical death is such a fractional concern that Jesus, for Jesus that for him, sleeping is a more accurate description. Even more brazen, in John 11, a close friend of Jesus named Lazarus dies. Jesus is on his way. He says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples have not realized that he does this all the time. In a fun little cautionary tale against literalism, the disciples respond and say, oh, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get better soon. And so then Jesus clarifies, Lazarus has died. He's like, huh? But then he adds, even more ridiculous, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there because when he got called, he was only sick. And if he had have been there, he could have healed him. That's the implication. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus is not phased by the fact that his dear friend has died because physical death is not a primary threat in his mind. Now, that's not to say that grief isn't real and that Jesus didn't grapple with that. It's a paradoxical reality that a couple of verses after saying, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe, we then see him weeping with his friends Mary and Martha over the death of his friend Lazarus, even knowing he has the power to resurrect him. So this perspective on physical death isn't an antidote to grief. It's not like, don't feel bad, it's not real. But Jesus taught in word and in deed that physical death, while daunting, isn't the true concern for those that know God. And his disciples eventually grasped this, all but one being killed for their faith. And Paul's life is a testimony to how well he gets it. And his body showed the scars. And so that's why when he closes this letter, the armor of God that he lays out is utterly useless as a piece of physical protection because that's not the point. The armor that God gives us will not equip us to triumph over physical enemies or protect us from physical threats, and it's not supposed to. So, with all of that on the table, we're going to walk through the armor itself. Each piece, it's a fun thing in commentaries, there's sort of this give, ebb and flow of how you're supposed to approach sort of the core idea of each piece of armor. Whether it's sort of the, the security that's provided, sort of the high-level capital the, the capital T truth versus a way that we actually walk in that sort of ideal. And I think it's healthy, actually, if we take both of them all the time. That is difficult to explain without an example. The belt of truth. 
on the one hand, we can understand it and it is understood rightfully as the truth, capital T, of who God is, of what Jesus has done. But at the same time, it calls us to live truthfully, to live lives of integrity, honesty, and transparency. And both of those things are true. The breastplate of righteousness, simultaneously, we put on the righteousness of Christ. It's not our own. And we were able to come before God as a result of that. But then at the same time, putting on the breastplate of righteousness points us towards the spirit-empowered commitment to actually fighting against temptation, to walking in purity. The shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. Fun little translation ambiguity here. There's, sort of, there's two meanings. The first reading of this is the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. So there's this stability that comes from knowing the gospel. But then there's also, in other translations, if you grew up with NLT or NIV, I believe those are the primary ones that use it, say the readiness to share the good news. And so it's not just I know the gospel and so that I'm steady. It's I'm ready to share the gospel because it gives me steadiness. And both of those things are required. You can probably follow the pattern at this point if you want, but I'm going to do them all because we need to do them all. The shield of faith. At once, the gift of faith, the baseline capacity for trust in God given to us by God. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Onus is on God at the front end, something that we've been given. But then it's also the daily and future faith, facing faith that God will hold to his promises and walk with us through what happens. The helmet of salvation, both the knowledge that we have been saved, that Jesus' death and resurrection has already secured a new way of life for us today, and also the confidence that we will be saved, that in the midst of life's trials, sufferings, and even just petty miseries, we know that Jesus will return and make everything right one day. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this demarks both our confidence in the Bible itself, that we have the words of God, this wild text that has run the gauntlet of human history, and yet we trust and know that it is exactly what God wants us to have. But then also the knowledge that the Holy Spirit speaks dynamically to us through the Scriptures and also through prayer, helping us discern the right way forward in the midst of our constantly changing daily life. So that's the armor that as Christians we're called to put on so that we can stand against not people, not human enemies, but the spiritual forces of darkness that undergird the fallen world we live in. The manuscript says one more question, but then I immediately said, actually, there's a bonus question, so it feels disingenuous to say that. Two more questions. The first is, why don't we put it on? And I've been thinking about this a lot because I realized as I was prepping that I fall rather short in actively thinking about applying the truths of this passage. I know them to be true, and there are ways that they sort of I've been a Christian for 25 years or so. There are, there are some good habits and patterns, and I'll hear a sermon or uh, read a verse that challenges me to go in a specific direction that is included in this. But thinking about the armor of God, which was something that I remember being like dominant in my mind as a kid, is not something that happens very often. 
So then this question came up, why don't I put it on? Paul makes a big deal about it. And I thought, well, generally, soldiers only take off their armor for two reasons. A, because they don't need it, since they're either off duty or the conflict is over. Or B, it's no longer helpful. For instance, people no longer wear plate armor, because it's not providing any significant means of protection, except for at medieval times in Toronto. And I think both of these can apply. They certainly apply to me. Because if we turn our hearts off to the world, to both its temptations and its suffering, we can come to believe that there's no real conflict happening. We just sort of become dead to it. And so you don't need, why would you think? There's no need, there's no pressing need to be protected because what are you being protected from? You understand temptation, that's fine. And so there's no urgency there. And then the other side is we can fall into the trap of thinking that certain parts of the armor, or even all of it, aren't actually helping us. There's a sneaky idea that you need to sort of fine-tune what your righteousness looks like in order for people to talk to you. Or that too much integrity doesn't actually help you function in the world. And that is actually true. There's a level of honesty at a secular level that is unhelpful. And it's easy to think that, well, if I can give them sort of the properly filtered perspective on my life, that that will actually, that's, that's more tuned to this specific moment. There's a difference between a lack of integrity or honesty and discernment, but it's easy to buy into that. And there's a ton of potential reasons. One that I thought of as I mostly listened to everybody singing this morning was we forget that we're not by ourselves. It's a, it's a pretty established byword amongst soldiers that while national pride or care for the vulnerable, all those things are, are significant reasons to fight, most of the time once you're in the trenches, you fight for the person next to you. And North America is pretty, pretty good at being individual and our faith can become pretty individual a lot of the time. And I... Honestly, had a hard, I had a hard week, guys. I had a tough week, mostly caused by me, honestly. But I did. And I came this morning pretty, pretty wrung out, and then I heard everybody singing. And that, for me, is a particular blessing. And I was like, oh, jeez, okay. All right, time to, time to go, because everybody else came. And it's hard to sing sometimes. It's hard to show up at church sometimes. And so by recognizing the community that we went, one of the re- that, to simplify, one of the reasons we sometimes don't put, our, put armor on is because we think that it's only ourselves that we're taking care of. I think of that every time I've talked about DNA, DNA in the past, but that's a good thing to remember in MC. Is you don't just show up because you need to share how things have been. You also show up because your buddies had a tough week and you didn't know about that, and if you don't show up, then what do you do? There's a lot of potential reasons. Perhaps the easiest is that we just don't think about it because it feels like there's enough already going on. And so I got just a little bit more to say after this, but before I land the, the plane, I want, I'm going to give us another, I know it's wild to take two sections for reflection in a single sermon. It's crazy. But I want us to take a second to reflect and be like, why... And if you do this all the time, if every morning you strap on your boots, good for you. Hug somebody next to you because they're having a hard time probably. 
But if you feel any of this, take a minute. Not to judge yourself and be like, oh, I don't do it because I suck at praying or whatever. Just reflect on what gets in the way of thinking about the armor of God and the blessings that he gives us and how easy it is to not dig into them. Uh, yeah. The last question is, how do we put it on? Um, this is kind of a strange sentence, but I think there's a tendency to think that we put the armor on by doing what the armor is for. That we put on truth by being truthful. We put on righteousness by not sinning. And there's a bit of truth there, sort of living into the miracle. But there's also a little bit of if a kid's like, hey, what's the best way to put on my running shoes? And you say, well, the best way is to run around. Because it's not the same. And especially if we're tired physically, spiritually, whatever you like, even the whiff of the idea that this is just another daily checkbox can honestly just be overwhelming. And in North America, let's be honest, we're all tired to some extent. So I think there's some real poignant beauty that Paul finishes this rousing call to arms with the call to prayer. I'll read it direct. So he says, yeah, take the helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me. It's still a high call. There's a, lo there's a lot of alls in there. Pray at all times, with all prayer. Keep alert with all perseverance for all the saints. But it's still ultimately a call to prayer, which is a to spend time with Jesus and while prayer may not come naturally to all of us I hope we can feel the paradoxical tenderness of the idea that spending time with Jesus is in many ways the best way to put this armor on there's action required but prayer is there and so back to the kid asking how to put on their shoes this response from Paul is basically Sit down with me and I'll show you. Because it's not supposed to be a burden. Armor is for protection because there's something significant happening. And Jesus doesn't wield that as a club. And so I hope, I didn't know prayer was restarting tonight. That's great. If you got time, do it. It's good for your heart. If you don't have time, fit it in a drive 
or in between picking up two kids or something because it's the best thing we have. Yeah. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you're very good. You're very kind. I pray that your words would go deep not just in the sense that we would remember them, but that they would, they would hold us up in tough times, that we would turn to them more often than, they would, than we would turn to all the other lowercase solutions that the world offers to us, that we would face the challenge that you lay out for us, to say that there is a war going on and our enemies aren't people. There's something beyond that that we don't understand. We need your help because we can't fight that. And so I just, I pray that we would take stock, be aware of the situation we're in, and with strength given from you, not from ourselves, just sort of getting ready, that we would face it, not with a bunch of bravado and empty ego, but with time spent with you and the strength that always comes from that pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.